You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online video platform geared towards making you a better hunter. Watch instructional videos taught by hunting experts like Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, and Corey Jacobson. After the hunt, learn how to prepare your harvest from world-class wild game chefs like Hank Shaw and Jamie Tagan. Whether it's your first year hunting or you grew up doing it, Outdoor Class will take your skills up a notch. Use code EMPIRE20 at checkout to save 20% off. Visit OutdoorClass.com to learn more. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Hopefully everyone's doing well. We're in the midst of hunting season. The rut is near and a lot of people are getting anxious. I've been hunting just a little bit here and there, just trying to get uh, my grasp of what's going on in the environments that I'm that I'm obviously hunting. You know, pictures are not the greatest. I don't really have any great deer to go after right now, so it's kind of in a lull period for me. But I wanted to talk about a hunt that Perry Batten, who's on this podcast, the land manager for Drury Outdoors, he killed a great deer and uh, some of his uh, constituents killed great deers as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about his hunt and what's he got going on. So, hey, Perry, how are you doing, buddy? Good, man. How are you? Good, good, man. So uh, you killed a, a beautiful buck early in the season, and I want to kind of walk through that particular hunt and then talk about what you got going on currently. So let's break down, you know, your situation, the hunt, the deer, the circumstance, everything. Can you give me some history? Yeah, for sure. Actually, that deer, um, surprisingly or not, we, we did not know him. Normally, every deer we kill up here, we have years of history with. This deer was a deer that showed up on a, it's only a 97-acre farm. I've killed three mature bucks on it in the last three years working up here. And uh, <clears throat> it's a big clover field, and then right in front of the box barn, we plant uh, biologic deer radishes to, uh, to kind of flow them from the clover into bow range. Um, but we did not know this deer, but he showed up and man, he stuck like glue early September and then on into season and myself, Wade and Mark took a look at him and we we're like, there's, there's no possible way that that deer is not five and a half, probably six and a half, just his head, his body. He walked every other deer off the field if they were out there. And so we, uh, we waited for the correct winds and, uh, we got a, 
a pretty nice uh, September cold front, and uh, we we went in after him, and uh, it it paid off in big ways. He there was uh, four bucks that came out that night, and uh, he was he came from the north end of the field. The fields, the total acres of that field is about two and a half. And then a half acres of it is right in front of the blind and, and deer radishes. Anyways, we had three bucks sparring and working scrape trees in front of us at 25 yards. And he came all the way from the north end of the field and pinned his ears back as soon as he walked out and just walked the whole length of the field all the way to those two and a half. And I had to almost yell at him to get him to stop because he was so concentrated on going to fight those other bucks. And I shot him at 30 yards and he went, maybe 50 60 yards off the field so hmm. all right so let's back up for a second so it's good you're dialoguing about the specifics of the hunt so people get the framework of what transpired but i'm interested in the the logistics piece of it you said that was there was a cold front so at that point in time do you remember what the change in temperature may have been um i think we had a 15 to 20 degree temperature drop which in september is is pretty crazy and it was an evening hunt Yes, it was an evening hunt, and the winds went from a bunch of south to a east-northeast, which is a very rare wind here in the Midwest. We we rarely get – we get northeast quite often. We don't get anything, like, straight out of the east. And this particular spot, when the wind switched, we were like, we, we have to go. This deer's there. He's been frequenting almost every night, and uh, we got in that blind. And, and east-northeast there is – not the best wind it kind of blows down the edge of the creek which some deer um bet on so we got in the blind in hopes that our wind would stay true and uh there was actually the three bucks besides him that came out uh came from our downwind side so we got lucky there and uh it worked out but he ended up coming from the north bedroom and, and working the whole field so so th- those deer that were kind of downwind of you, are you thinking that your, your I guess your angle of incident or your, your angle of or wind was just offset just enough where they didn't catch your wind? I'm, that, that's my assumption. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Our, I think our wind held just enough east to it that it blew just on the edges where they were bedded. And we came, our access through there is through a bunch of cedars and then you drop down into this bottom field. So the access is, is absolutely bulletproof and and you actually come from the north a little bit. So Mm. until you get right to the blind, your east is not uh, that big of a deal. So our access was a huge part in that. And uh, just just having those reconics cameras and MRI of the deer being there, I mean, what a game changer in some situations. And I'm guessing there's cell cameras, so you don't have to go and check cameras in that area just for disturbance purposes. Is that what you're working with? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Like the, this Missouri farm from where we kind of our main stage up here in Iowa, it's, it's about 40 minute drive. So, and it's only 97 acres and we kill, we'll kill one or two mature deer off of it a year. And when I say mature five or six years old, we don't shoot anything under that. So, um, it's quite amazing, you know, what little intrusion and having food does on small parcels of ground. Yeah, let's, we'll get to the, the, the ground in the neighborhood setting in a second, but I want to go back to your access, and, and you're talking about how you you maneuvered through there. So an east or north wind, 
wasn't blowing in the direction at that location. So you're transecting that, right? So you're you're traveling, I'm assuming. Can you kind of explain that? And you said you went downhill. Can you kind of dialogue exactly what that looks like? Yeah, so on this 97 acres, we have a, a top field. It's, it's literally 100 yards from the gate where you enter this farm. And there's two big ridges. One goes pointed southeast and one goes pointed straight south and we have a big plot up there and it's normally a better um, gun spot just from the standpoint of how far the shooting can be but anyways and then you go past that plot you go straight south down the south ridge and this farm is really really thick cover big hillsides with there's there's a bunch of oaks um, on these hillsides but it's mainly cedars and uh, we cut a road to go down to this bottom field and then um, cleared out this bottom plot. And then when you get down the road so far, you cut to the south just a little bit, and there's just a little walking trail that's about, I don't know, 50, 50 yards long, and it just drops you right down into the back backside of the blind. And uh, we built a cedar break on each side when you drop down into the field and there's an elevation drop. Um, I, I don't, I don't know how many feet of elevation that drops, but it's it's quite a bit of drop. But we built piled up big cedar breaks, so when you drop down through your access to get into the blind, even the deer in the field, if there was deer in the field, um, it'd be hard for them to see you the way we designed that access, and we did it that way because you're so exposed coming off any hillside, no matter where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's it. That is interesting. So that you got the element of the cedars, which are not necessarily transparent, but then you've got the, the, the decaying matter that you use to surround the blind to conceal it, um, yep. to sneak in the backside. So you got to be in those cases, a lot of times it's the alignment with the vegetation or directly in alignment with the, with the blind in order to get in and out of those areas. So, uh, Interesting, interesting thing to think through. Like, you know, that level of detail, you, you, you need that. But you said originally you kind of walked through a plot to get there. So you have a plot on the on the, the near edge of your access point. Is that true? Yes, we do. It's 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 kind of against our rules to go past the plot <clears throat> to get to another. But um, this particular spot, the dirt is only good on these ridge fields right there where we've carved it out on the top. And like I said, it's only 100 yards from the gate. So we kind of dictate that farm, whether we're getting mature bucks on the bottom or the top. And then, you know, whichever spot we're getting the matures, we kind of don't hunt the other spots just to try and keep less pressure off of the spots that the matures are using. Like last year, we had a mature buck, a big eight-pointer that I killed on the top plot. So we never hunted the bottom. I shot him with a bow early September as well on the top field. And uh, you can, in the blind, you can literally turn around and see the gate 150 yards behind you. So, and that's really interesting because I think a lot of people don't realize like deer are going to use certain areas based on their preferences at certain times. Like it could be conditional of what's growing in that area, what you've planted, et cetera, et cetera. But they're going to have natural preferences and they're individualized. So, you know, they're going to pick locations and obviously some areas are hot and some areas are not, and it's time of year contingent. So it's interesting a few years in a row, you've had good September movement on that farm. So it's nice to know that. I'm interested. Go ahead. No, I, that's a good point you bring up. And I think it played a big role in this hunt because um, we, you know, we talked in a previous podcast about the severe drought we were in 
And Missouri wasn't as bad as Iowa, but we still were dry down there. And that bottom field sits low, a lot of shade, and uh, it's next to a creek, so it's just a naturally low, kind of a wetter area. And the clover and the green field that we planted, the deer radishes, did better than the top plot up on the ridge, full sunlight. So I think the deer have been concentrating on the bottom field because it grew better than the top, for sure. Yeah, that's good. And that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about that two and a half acre field, the layout of that. Um, and I know you kind of dialogued a little bit, you know, you've got the clover and then I think you said the the biologic radishes was, was that the case right around the blind? Yep. Yep. All right. Can you kind of explain in, in your best detail, right? We don't have an illustration here, but like, what does that look like and how is that layout constructed adjacent to the blind? Obviously we talked about your access. Now we're talking specifically about, you know, what that field looks like. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a pretty oval circle type field. It's, I'd have to map it out, but it's somewhere around the two acre mark. And, uh, right in front of the blind, we just cut out about a half acre and put in the deer radishes. And we actually had to replant because of the drought. So it ended up being deer radishes mixed in with rye wheat and trigicale for a late planting to get, get some green because the drought was killing us. And then the rest of the field, we transitioned this year into, uh, or last year into clover. So this year was the first year hunting over that field in clover. And then right to the east, on the east side of the plot, there's a a nice creek that runs by it. And then probably 80 to 100 yards off this field is our fence line to the east. It's It's a corner that comes in about 100 yards off the field. And then to the north of this plot, it's big, two big ridges and hillsides that are oak cedary mix, very thick cover. Awesome. Um, and then to the west and to the south is kind of the same. It's It sits in a bowl, if you will. It's a, lo- a very low area, and all around it is uh, just cedars and oaks and just thick hillsides. And it's actually getting to the point um, – Mark and I and Wade discussed this. It's getting to the point where it's kind of too thick. The cedars are taking over. We need to go in and um, cut some of those out with the skid steer and that X mulcher and, and mulch some of them up to let, let some grass and natural browse come up because I'm sure you know cedars can, can be invasive quickly. Yeah, especially in your area. They take, take over on those ridge lines like that. And yeah, it's interesting, and in, in, in those conditions, like you're laying out – where you're hunting, you're really hunting at the end of a point, essentially. Is that, is that kind of what the layout looks like, at least from a blind or where's the blind in relationship to, obviously we've got our, our Northwest East. Where where is the blind located? The blind is on the Southwest corner of the, of the plot. And it's there because also we have a, a water hole built about 30 yards South of the blind. So that corner allowed for a spot to build a water hole, a spot to designate for the green field to get the deer within bow range. And also that scrape line on the south end of the field is, is the best. So that was kind of the um, direction for the blind. Okay, that makes sense. I can, I can visualize this. So the water hole itself, is it in the food plot or is it on the edge of the food plot or a transition? It is just outside the food plot in kind of a grassy grown-up area okay do you happen to mow around that water hole area is it a natural water hole or is it is it is it like a one of those troughs that we've talked about before uh no it, it's a 
it's a built water hole. It okay. was built when we had the equipment in there to build the plot. Okay. And we mow a path. Um, this is also very, um, stitch, <laughs> a very uh, directional spot we mow to get the deer to hopefully only drink out of it within bow range because if they're on the backside and come in to drink out of it, if you mowed over there, they could be a little distant for a bow shot. So we do mow a path, but only on the, on the front side to hopefully uh, incentivize drinking on that side of them. Really? Yeah, water hole. That's a big detail there. People need to think about the related vegetation, the water source, and how comfortable deer are. I, I got another question for you. So these radishes, and I know you had to plant them twice just because your drought conditions. What were the, what were the size of the radish? And it sounds like you have scraped trees in radish plots. Is that, is that true? We have scraped trees in every every plot uh, that we decide to bow hunt. It, it is an absolute game changer as far as getting a deer within bow range. And they're just starting right now to hit them pretty good. Um, and we also transition a lot of our cameras that we have in food plots to catch the scrape. And then the background would be the bulk of the field. So you get the bulk of the deer that are using them. Um, but yes, we have a scrape tree in that plot. And like I said, in, in every plot, let me ask you a little bit about camera data. And, and, uh, we've talked about this previously, but the positioning of those cameras, are they sitting on sticks out in the field? Are they on the edge of the field? Do you conceal them? Do you elevate them? What's your strategy in this particular area? Yeah. So in this field, particularly in most fields, we just use a simple T post that you get it at a farm and home store. And, uh, like I said, we've put it, we'll put it five to 10 yards off the scrape tree in the center of the plot and then direction our view of the camera to get, if a deer comes and hits the scrape, we get it obviously. And then hopefully if there's deer in the background, um, and it gets triggered, you get most of the view of the plot, if you will. And almost every camera we have in that situation, unless there's a natural tree on a corner that we can use, um, they're mostly on T-Pos. And that's also how we do our scrape trees. I prefer either pin oaks or shingle oaks. You go along the brush line and cut one off, drive a T-Pos, use either big zip ties or some wire and uh, wire it to the post. And I mean, it's simple and they use it like nothing else I've seen. So I have a little bit of an observation uh, change here. So I think, at least in my area, I do the exact same thing. I take a T-post, I take a, a tree. It could be an ironwood, a beech, and then I'll take a uh, cut uh, pin oak and I will zip tie branches to that. I don't have a lot of small saplings. I usually get mowed down here because of the browse pressure. So I'll take one of those, I'll mount it to the tree. Usually it'll be a combination of zip tie and uh, like hardware. I, I might use... Um, uh, like a clothes hanger, um, just a cheap option for you because you you know that wire works pretty well. What I found, yep. what I found is at least in the areas that I'm hunting. And again, I'm hunting areas that are pressured. One of the farms that I just did on it, that there's like five guys that hunt on, and there's a ton of pressure on the farm. But you know, I'll put them near the edge of the field, not right in the center of the field, and I get a little bit more results just co-locating it a little closer to a field edge rather than way out in the field, at least in my areas. I think it has a lot to do with the pressure that I'm hunting, but I really think that idea of just throwing a T-post down for a lot of these things. The other thing I really enjoy with the cameras is I bought those, I think they're, I forget what the brand is. It might be like HTM and it's uh, you know, it's just, you know, it's got a, 
uh, swivel mount on the top of it and, and you know you can press it in the ground with your foot and you don't have to loudly slam a t-post into the ground I, i've kind of liked those a little bit better yep uh, yeah I, the little push and step yeah, deals yeah push and step deals and I, i've kind of like been inclined to use those a little bit more although you can get the t-post pretty inexpensive and i've got them i've got probably 50 of them in my my backyard so i may go the cheap route and i'm sure you're putting a ton of stuff out there so you can't spend you know, the, the difference of spending 4 or $5 versus $20 when you're doing a lot of cameras kind of adds up. But, you know, there's options for people that don't have as many cameras. So I figured I'd add that in the conversation. So let me ask you another little question. And this is just kind of a little tidbit. So when you're putting in those scrape trees and you're trying to orient a branch or multitude of branches, um, how are you facing them in relationship to the tree stand? That, that becomes a very prominent question that people ask. And there's typically a strategy. But what do you do? Yeah, for sure. Honestly, like if I'm by myself or if Wade is helping me, we, we go and do these together some days and, you know, we'll both go and cut a tree down, you know, in some spots you were talking about trying to get the deer out of the wood line far enough. So you put it closer to the wood line. Well, in these instances, if our plot's pretty far away from the cover, we'll put one on the edge close to the cover and then a tree really close to the blind, kind of leading them out. Cause they always seem to hit the edge one first, obviously, and then come and hit the next one. Yeah. So in that sense, we'll take, and if there's two people, we'll put two, a person in the blind and say, Oh, you know, open the windows of the blind and say, okay, we need it here and we need it faced, you know, whatever direction it needs to be faced North, South. And we always try to think, okay, if the deer is coming from the West from cover and the branches are faced to the East, He's going to come around that tree to get to the branches that are low hanging on the east side, which is going to give the hunter a broadside shot. Yeah. Once yeah. he once he gets there. Yep. So we always try to strategize to get those deer to be broadside wherever they're at in the plot using the scrape trees. So another piece of this is this directional movement. We talked a little bit about you know have a mode trail and then connecting the dots from one area to the next area. It's probably a little bit difficult to kind of get that all squared away based on the amount of work that you guys have. But in ideal conditions, would you even take the time? I guess it depends on what the food source is. So in this case, radishes, you're probably not going to run a mower over them, but clover you might, or, you know, maybe if it's a rye or wheat field, do you do any of the mowing into one location to the next, just to one to have a cleared off area. So it's easier for them to scrape, right? Cause lower vegetation tends to work a little bit better. They're, they're fighting against less material. Although actually let me, let me clarify that in areas where you had don't have like, depending on what type of radish, let's say you're using, well, in this case, we're talking about, you're talking about brassica, correct? And in combination yes. with the radish, you probably have both yeah. of them. Um, you probably don't want to get rid of the bulbs or the tops because they're highly valued. So um, sometimes it forms, depending on the height of it, a little bit of cover. And, and I, I don't know if you've noticed this, and this just seems a little odd to me. A lot of people think that really low vegetation around scrapes, the deer prefer that I've actually seen the opposite. If there's some vegetation that's a little bit higher and obviously you got to create an area for a scrape, um, they have a little more comfort in those areas for some reason, particularly if they're kind of compartmentalized. I don't, it may be a small little, you know, obscure point, but how do you notice the difference in clover versus radish? Because the radishes and the, uh, the resident tops and the height of that is, is relative to sometimes their interest. And obviously the food source does matter in those conditions because those deer love to hit those radishes early season. Like 
radishes in my in my uh, my backyard, for example, I've got a little line of radishes. They've already eaten all the tops off, and we haven't hardly even had any freezes at this point, which is which is funny. Um, what are you observing, like with vegetation height, scraping, all that kind of stuff, and mowed trails? Yeah, for sure. Um, as far as like mowed trails, we don't mow any trails in our green fields because we want as much food there as possible. Although if we have, um, just a really easy and really, uh, dynamite way to get deer in front of you in a big landscape, um, a good example, the other day, Wade and I went and, uh, put a blind on a 52 acre piece of property and about 40 of it is tillable. And we left three acres of beans on this particular spot. The rest of it got combined. So our blind is about 80 yards from the uh, north end of the bean field, the standing bean field. And we just took a truck and drove a T-like pattern, a, a T across the bean field, right in front of the blind at 25 yards. Mm-hmm. And, and then a T north to south uh, meeting the uh, other T that we drove um, next to the blind and then two scrape trees, one at 30, one at 25, right in the T of the road that we drew. We just literally took a truck two tracked it, drove it a few times each way, North, South, East, West, made a T out of it. And those deer are walking through a three acre standing bean field on the two track we drove and hitting the scrape trees. Easy. So yeah, that's a simple option. Anyone out there can do that. I mean, take your truck, your car, whatever you got, you know, if you, if you got some fields like that and you're able to buy a little bit of grain back and, uh, and put two scrape trees out there and and see what happens. I mean, this is a spot that's wide open ag field that we're most likely will kill a deer with a bow out of. So yeah, that's an interesting, interesting setup. What do you have for cover to get in out of that blind? What What is it? What's the layout there? Um, we come up, come up a waterway along the edge of the field, but we are a little exposed the last 200 yards in the blind. It's, it's just the fact of the matter and the way that it lays. And yeah, we'd certainly love to put our blind lower so we could get in cleaner um, most times, but then the, the wind gives us a little issue. So being on top of the ridge is, is where we, where we need to be. Do you buddy hunt that situation in case you got a bust deer off that field or do you sit and wait? Uh, we certainly have like, uh, you know, the best thing in my opinion is if we drive down the, the road or the access road to get into the farm and you see deer way off in the distance in the field, just take the truck up there, let them see it. You know, they'll bump off real easy from a vehicle yeah, and then go and park and then get in, you know, eat, a truck or a piece of farm equipment bumping them off is way better intrusion than two guys walking out in the middle of a field. So, yeah, yeah. That's the field version of bump and dumping deer. I like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I guess I was going with the other thing is, is two things. One, when you're putting in the scrape trees and you've got to remove the existing vegetation, sometimes when you have like a, a brassica, it's a lot easier to, I guess, just, get dirt, you know, exposed, mineral soil exposed. The other piece of it is I find a lot of these in plots, like I have a sorghum plot and the deer have literally stripped these, uh, at least the top half of every single sorghum plant. They stripped all the leaves off it. Then they go, this is over the past four weeks. Then they take the seed head and they, you know, 
tear off the seed head, you know, and, and basically they've stripped all these areas. What I like is underneath that I've got winter rye and uh, winter, uh, winter wheat growing uh, beneath that. So now I've got a late season food source in combination with cover. And basically I take a field setting and I've cut it in half. So one half of it is sorghum with that growing underneath. It's spaced appropriately. And then on the other side, I have a kind of a clover combination alfalfa uh, food plot right now. And uh, I find the transition going from the low to the high. They come out of a bedding area. They transition west and they go from a low to high. And it's kind of an interesting kind of layout. Um, but anyhow, like having a f- source of cover in a, f- a food plot tends to create, I think, a little more calmness with the deer. And in your e- example there, right, an exposed area, it's just trying to manage, you know, that stimuli of people coming and going and trying to minimize that. So I, I think that's interesting. We're 27 minutes in and we haven't talked about, and I think we got your hunt down. You know, it was a beautiful buck. I think 150 inch deer in that range. Um, yep. He went 151. And uh, he was real narrow deer, but real long tines and beautiful buck. Yeah, and you you killed the stud obviously last year as well. Um, what about? I know Wade killed, and Wade's buck was incredible, and I know Mark killed. Yeah, yep. uh Wade's buck. Uh, can you give kind of a brief synopsis on what happened there? Yeah, that deer uh, we've had a, a lot of history with. He's six and a half this year, um, and we had him at four and a half, we believe. He showed up. He was a clean eight-pointer, beautiful frame deer. And then at five and a half, we had him early October, and I believe he left the sixth or the seventh, and we never saw him again until late season. Like, he, he transitioned to a neighboring farm or, or somewhere. We, we, we really don't know where he went. And so, you know, going into the season, he showed up on summer cameras, and we were like, this is a deer we have to focus on to try and get killed before he leaves because we felt history would repeat itself like most times it does. And so we had, had a couple decent, um, weather evenings and, uh, and allowed us to get into some wind spots and plots that this deer was using. And we had pictures of him using it and, uh, they hunted two nights for him. One night was on a ridge field, uh, deer, deer radishes. And he came out, and but didn't get into bow range until uh, late after shooting light. He was walking bucks around on the field and just never ended up in front of them. And then the second evening they hunted for him was in a bottom field on some south winds, southeast, I believe. And he came out in the deer radish field leading to standing beans and walked walked into their lives at at 25 yards, I believe, right in front of the blind, and and Wade put a put a good shot on him, and his biggest deer to date went 188. Had a big old drop time too. I, I mean, an amazing deer and amazing story, and it's just cool that that we got him harvested off of our farms before he before he left. It's kind of what we refer to as a bonus buck. You know, we don't we don't winter the deer, we don't have them all season, and we capitalize when the time was right. Yeah, so that's that's good, and it's it's nice to hear you both been successful, and, and Mark was successful. So let's um let's break down. We talked yesterday. Was it yesterday? The day the other day on the phone, and I think you were combining corn, or you were you were doing some work. What are you doing right now? What what's what's going on in your world right now? Yeah, right now um, we're just watching the cameras, and you know every day is is the same pretty much. Um, wake up see what deer have walked where, what deer daylighted. And if the winds dictate it, we need to 
move a blind or um, strategize something to harvest one of the deer that's daylighted, that's what we do. And, and yesterday when you called me, that was what we were doing. Um, we got a bunch of northwest, west-northwest winds coming here in the Midwest. And we've got a blind, a big L-shaped greenfield that sits on the east side of the, the plot. Uh, but it's on skids, so it's movable. And so yesterday we took the tractor in there. Under the sound of the tractor midday, we had a strong west wind, and we put the blind on the south east corner of the plot now so okay. that yep. all of our west-northwest blow over a big standing cornfield. And uh, hopefully there's been a few matures using that particular field, and hopefully that move will get us where we need to be for these coming winds and uh, harvest one of those big jokers. But that's currently what we're up to. I mean, every day we go through the season, it's, okay, this camera needs to be moved. They're not hitting the scrape. We need to find a different scrape that they're hitting. Um, this blind needs to be moved to this spot for the winds coming. Um, it's, it's every day is, uh, we strategize myself, Mark and Wade and figure out where we need to be for the best opportunities. So I'm going to, I'm going to bridge a topic here. So I, I love that you just had that example of you made a game time decision knowing in a week, at least at this point, it was four or five days later, you had a certain weather condition coming that you're going to capitalize on, right? That's just planning that planning ahead. Right. And, and with, uh, not a, you know, you've got a lot of farms, right? There's one particular farm that kind of meets that criteria where you think you're going to get something done. And it's like strategizing at that point in time, the intrusion aspect of it, where you're just talking about moving, you know, using a tractor, you know, and I'm sure some things are kind of planned out the level of intrusion that you're willing to go towards to moving a camera. Are you timing these at certain instances based upon utilization on the farm? So, I'm just going to give you an example. I went over my property the other night and, uh, oh, well, I moved cameras in a rainstorm and that was one, one strategy. I cut corn in the middle of the day, just like I was a farmer. It's combining season here. Uh, I cut, I cut pathways through a cornfield and I put down winter rye. And I think hopefully it takes, it should take, uh, based on our weather conditions here over the next two weeks. But I basically was doing my layout on, on certain strategic periods of time, coinciding what naturally happens on my landscape or utilizing you know periods where deer aren't in an area, so to speak, or weather conditions allow me to do what I need to do. The level of intrusion is really, really critical in these circumstances. So are you guys sitting down and plotting these things out of when you're going to do what? Or Man, you've got like tons of farms, a lot of small farms, a lot of farms that you've got to manage. <laughs> is it as, you know, just in time, we got to do this, we got to go, you know, and maybe it's time of day contingent or <clears throat> like what's, what's generally what your strategy? You're, I'm assuming you're really strategizing a lot of these moves. Yeah. Every move is talked about and strategized between Mark, myself and Wade. And we jump into deer cast, look at the forecast, jump into hourly and say, okay, we got the right wind to keep our wind out of the bedroom at, you know, yesterday in instance was noon to two. We had that window of wind. So that's when we did it. Uh, I jumped in the tractor at one o'clock, ran over to the farm. Those guys were behind me in a truck. We never turned the tractor off. We never turned the truck off. They ran the entire time that the project was going on. And uh, instead of driving T-post to secure the blind, I we have these auger type 
uh, secure bits that drive into the ground with an impact that I have. Yeah. And, uh, we, we did it that way cause it's a lot quieter than banging a T post, which we talked about earlier in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean just little bitty things and, and to your question, everything is talked about, everything is strategized and almost everything is dictated by the wind. And, um, we almost every time we do a project, and it could be as small as going to check a trail camera. Um, we we probably take the tractor, and because that tractor is not a threat to them, they they see them every day, they hear them all the time, and uh, they smell the same you know diesel exhaust fumes all the time in this in the areas that we're hunting, and so um, that's that's a huge key. And doing those projects like what you did and timing your wind or during a rainstorm you know, where things are quieter, you can walk around quieter. Like it's a, it's a big deal for us, especially, you know, even on the farm we hunted or even on the farm, we moved the barn yesterday. It's 183 acres. You bump those deer out of there. You might not see them for another couple of days. So not a huge, not a huge piece, you know, yeah. and we've said earlier, you know, our biggest farms, 417 acres. So when we do something, we're so lightly to do it. And we talk about it multiple different times before it's done. Yeah. And I, I like that, that, that team, uh, that team focus. I will say for a lot of people that own land, you know, you're traveling quite a bit to the different farms. It's really nice. And this is a convenience thing. It's nice to be co-located near your hunting land or near your farm or whatever the case may be, where you can plan these things out and you can be extremely strategic with making changes, hanging stands, et cetera. Um, it allows that for that convenience um, where, you know, again, you've got to travel 40 minutes to go do, do a project. You've got to plan that out. And like you said, the time of day is critical in, in those specific instances. And getting equipment here and there is, is another logistical nightmare. But again, I think it's really interesting the volume of strategy that goes into each move. And I've really kind of enjoyed the fact that, you know, you've broken down the seasons kind of in multiple phases. And in areas that are highly pressured, it seems like it's kind of a conglomerate. There isn't really a transition from, you know, this portion of the season to that portion of the season. But deer are feeding on different things at different times. I want people to pay attention to that. I want them to pay attention to what they're transitioning, you know, from a food source wise each period of time. Like, for example, in my area, corn's getting cut. Today's going to be a, it's a warmer day, even though we've had a lot of rain. You know, we haven't had a huge volume of rain over a couple week period. So the ground is relatively dry in some locations, depending on drainage. And they're combining all those corn areas. So the next two or three days after that, that's going to be highly utilized by deer. Because, again, you know, depending on the efficiency and, and how things, things like that go down, you know, those deer are going to co-locate in those areas. But it's just being really in tune with your areas. And when you're on top of things and you're you're close to your, your land, you can be really kind of in line with what's going on. So I would suggest people that are looking to buy land or getting access or getting a lease or whatever the case may be, being as close as you can to your property, I think is a huge benefit to, uh, to you as a landowner uh, or et cetera, leasee. So I don't know, just a small, small tidbit there. Um, For sure. And like you bringing up the fact that they're cutting corn in your area, not only are those areas going to be utilized by the deer, but a lot of deer are going to use, lose their their home that they've been using all summer so we we are seeing that a lot as well here in the midwest they're starting to get a lot of crops out of the ground and uh we're seeing deer show up 
that haven't showed up yet all year because they lost that standing cornfield, that standing bean field that they were living in all summer. And then they went, Oh crap, my field's cut. I can't live there anymore. So pay attention to your cameras and here in the Midwest, there's enough acorns blown out of the trees right now to feed the United States army. So it's a, (laughs) it's a fight. It's a fight to get them on a green field right now. Yeah. That's a good point, right? You got to work with natural material and what the natural mass does is obviously switches deer's, patterns at least patterns that you hope for because that that uh that doesn't dictate the movement that you may need to kill them in a hunting location so all right man uh we're past our time and i appreciate you getting on today um any any other thing you want to kind of end with anything that's on your mind everyone stay safe and have a great season hunt hard okay perry we're gonna have you back on uh probably in a month or so i want to just check in with you and see how you're doing because i i'm interested to see you know, your strategy kind of going into that later November season and uh, what you're going to do for the late season. You guys have a lot of, I know you're going to be shooting probably a lot of does potentially. So we'd like to hear a little bit more about those, some of those strategies. So um, more from us in uh, a month or so. Sounds good, man. All right, Perry. Talk to you soon, buddy. Yes, sir. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.